0: And well, would you pray with me once again? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the gift that it is to gather and worship. Thank you that you have invited us. You've uh, called us to come to you. Thank you that we can sing to you and pray to you. And now, Lord, we think of uh, the words of young Samuel in the Old Testament as he hears your voice and says, simply speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We pray, Lord, that that would be the attitude uh, of our hearts this morning, that we would say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Help us hear your voice now as we open your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, friends, well, hey, uh, go ahead and open your Bible. If you have one to Luke chapter one, uh, your Bible, or if you need a device, you got your Bible app, however you need to get there to Luke chapter one. That's where we're gonna be this morning. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here and just want to welcome you So glad that you are with us, and uh, Ian mentioned it in the announcement video already, but do just want to highlight our growth workshop tonight. I hope you will join us. We are really excited about just having uh, one hour. It won't be super long, but it'll be a time to kind of work through, hey, how has God wired you, gifted you, called you to serve him. So I hope that you'll take that shape test if you haven't already. Uh, there's still time, right? It takes about 30 minutes. You can do it this afternoon on your phone or computer. You do it after the service. Probably don't do it right now, you know, but just sometime today and then come out at five o'clock in our friendship room. We'd love to see you there. Um, the theme for our Advent series this year is prepare him Room." of course, is a line from that famous Christmas carol. Does anyone know? Joy to the world, right? Let every heart prepare him room. And so we're going to talk, especially this season, about that first word, prepare. There's a lot of preparation taking place right now, right? This season, we get a lot of things ready. There's a lot of thought, a lot of intentionality. We prepare our homes with lights, and decorations, and trees, and ornaments. Anyone uh, put up their Christmas tree before Thanksgiving this year? Few. Okay. A couple, look, look at us sociopaths here. I'm one of those people who normally were a strict after Thanksgiving decoration family, but this year we decided to do it before Thanksgiving. Amber really wanted it that way, and so it happened that way. So there you go. But um, the rest of you, I trust probably, you know, getting stuff up now after Thanksgiving, trees and lights and so on. It's a season of preparation. You prepare your home. You prepare maybe to host gatherings and have people over, send out invitations, cook things for people to eat. Maybe you prepare to be a guest in someone else's home. You think about what to bring what to wear. Maybe you're taking family pictures this year, so you prepare what outfits you're going to wear, how you're going to get dressed up. You send out Christmas cards, dress up for Christmas Eve. Maybe you have certain traditions. You cook Christmas cookies and send them around or cook tamales or some other uh, tradition you do every year. There's thought and preparation and intentionality because we're celebrating Jesus and his birth, right? And that's a big occasion. When someone important is coming over, we prepare for it. We get things ready. But one of the tragic ironies of the Christmas story, you read in the early verses of Luke chapter two, we know, right, that they weren't prepared for the arrival of Jesus. No one had a proper room prepared for him. And so he was born in a stable amongst the animals, right? And so it's possible this season to prepare our homes and prepare our clothes for nice gatherings and prepare our kitchens and prepare our food and prepare our Christmas cards and prepare everything without preparing our hearts to encounter Jesus. And if we do that, we'll miss out and what God wants to say to us. Spiritually speaking, we'll do the equivalent of showing up to Christmas dinner in our pajamas with bedhead. Or going home to a house with no lights and no decorations. We don't want to do the spiritual equivalent of that. And so, this season, each week at Advent, we're going to talk about a different way we can prepare our hearts to encounter Jesus this season. The first text that we're going to look at in our series is Luke chapter 1, as the angel comes to Mary. I'll read it for us, starting in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you... Who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So here we start at the beginning of the Christmas story, right? The birth of Jesus foretold to Mary. An angel sent to Nazareth to this young girl, Mary, and God has his messenger begin with a common greeting. the Lord is with you, this promise of God's presence and comfort. Now, if you have kids in the kids' choir and you've been listening to the soundtrack for the upcoming kids' choir performance, then these verses are probably quite familiar to you, right? The Lord is with you, Mary. Okay. A few, a few of you are tracking with me. Uh, if you are not ready for kids' choir on the 19th, let me just tell you, it is going to be something special okay the kids choir Darren and Janice do an amazing job with our kids basically a kids Christmas play it's called Emmanuel they're telling the story of Christmas with songs and act it's going to be amazing even if you don't have kids or grandkids in it you want to be here on the 19th okay let me just say that that's not a threat that's just an encouragement okay I hope you come out it's going to be great so an angel comes to Mary now what do we know about Mary The text tells us a few things, right? She's a virgin. She has not known a man in that way. She's betrothed, which means she's basically pledged to be married. Verse 27 tells us to Joseph. So in the ancient world, uh, being betrothed would be like being engaged today somewhat, except more binding, more serious, more of a commitment. And so she's uh, ready to be married, though she's not yet married. Likely she's young. Right, only maybe 14 years old. We don't exactly know. She's from Nazareth, so like Nowheresville, okay, middle of nowhere, small town. Uh, and twice the text tells us that she's highly favored. Now, there's been some confusion in over the years about what that phrase means. In certain Catholic teaching, uh, they will say that Mary is the one who is full of grace meaning they would think that she had some kind of uh, merit or favor that she earned. She was full of grace, the favored one, and so that's why God chose her to use her. And yet, that's not really what the text tells us. In fact, the text is really saying the opposite, that she is simply the recipient of God's grace and favor. She didn't earn it or work for it. She simply received God's grace. God chose to use her in this miraculous way. Now, after this personal greeting, what do we see her do in verse 29? How does she respond? The text tells us she was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's actually kind of an expected response, right? When you see an angel show up in Scripture, people aren't usually like, Hey, cool, you know, come on in, let's have a cup of coffee. They're usually terrified, troubled, Right, Like, what does this mean? Is this bringing good news, bad news? What's going on here? She doesn't quite know. And we see the angel brings Mary incredible news. In verse 30, she says, excuse me, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, every parent loves to hear high hopes and dreams for their children. Oh, your son is so, you know, athletic. They're going to go on and do so much. Your your daughter's so smart and intelligent. They're going to do great things. This is like on a whole nother level, though, because Mary's basically, told, hey, your son is going to be the king of the universe. High praise for her son. Mary is told she'll give birth to a son. Verse 31, you are to call him Jesus, which uh, that's not a common thing, right, throughout scriptures. Only a few times does God say, hey, I want you to name your child this. But here, this happens, so we know something special is taking place. The angel says he will be a king, right? Verse 32, he will rule on the throne of his father, David. Now, last week, we talked about all the connections, right, between the Old Testament and And the New Testament, this is another one of those places. The the throne of David was a reference back to the Old Testament. King David, right? Remember, slinging stones, David, David and Goliath, David, David and Bathsheba. David, one of the most uh, famous, not flawless, but one of those famous kings of Israel in their history. Back in the Old Testament, God comes to that David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and promises him, hey, you will have a descendant, an heir, a son that will reign on your throne forever but throughout the Old Testament we never see who that king is right that heir never never comes we can see some people who might fit that category but then they mess things up royally and so we're, we're left waiting who will this king from the line of David be and then the angel shows up and tells Mary your son will be that king. This Jesus, he's the one that the prophecies spoke of, who will rule on the throne of his father David. And maybe to you that doesn't mean much, or maybe we've heard that so often, it loses some of its power, the son of David, who will rule forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. All these lofty words and praise about Jesus. But think about what this would mean to Mary in Nazareth this young girl hearing these promises from God. See, for the Jews, there had always been this longing, this hope placed in a hero who would come and rescue them and deliver them and save them. A king who would bring peace and justice and fix all that is broken in the world. The Old Testament scriptures gave the people this hope. And I would argue that we still have that same uh, sense in our hearts that that is what the world so desperately needs. Amber and I just started watching some of the Marvel movies? Okay, like, yeah, okay, J.Q., thank you. Like, you know, Iron Man and uh, Captain America. We, you know, started watching some of those. And they're, they're superhero movies, right? And they're wildly popular, the stories and the movies, because I think, We have this longing in our hearts for a hero, a rescuer to come to make things right. Because those stories of of Superman or whoever, uh, those, that's not even Marvel, is I don't know, Uh, you know, Iron Man, whoever they are, we need help from outside of ourselves, someone with superhuman strength and power to come and fix things. And there's all these scenes in those movies, right, where things are not right, where the vulnerable are taken advantage of, where we're uh, evildoers are getting away with something and you're just longing for like Iron Man to put his suit on and show up, uh, show up and kick some bootay and make things right. And then he shows up and you're like, this is awesome, yeah. And he makes everything right. That's because we're we're longing for the one true story of God, the the one hero and savior that our world needs. It's Jesus. And so the people in the Old Testament were longing for this, for their Messiah, not only throughout the Old Testament. Here's the deal. When uh, this is taking place in the first century with the angel and Mary, it had been about 400 years of silence from God. So the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, was doing his thing around 400 BC, okay? Here we are in the first century. There wasn't much going on for 400 years that people weren't hearing from God. There was not a prophet. There was not a message. They didn't know, was was God done with us? Is he going to speak again? What's going to happen? Are the prophecies, are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? There's waiting. And now this messenger comes to Mary. The time is now. Your son will be this king. Mary responds in verse 34. Check it out. What does she do? She says, how will this be, Mary asks the angel, since I'm a virgin? Seems like a pretty reasonable question. And she's like, I'm no scientist, but I know enough to know that virgins can't give birth. And so I believe the scripture is about a Messiah, but how is this going to be fulfilled through me? Back then, people had their questions too. And it leads us to wonder, check it out, how is the angel going to receive Mary's question? What happened last time someone asked a question like this? Do you remember it? See, right before this encounter with Mary, there was another visit from an angel to someone else. His name was Zechariah. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, an angel comes. To Zechariah, and I want you to see that these the account with Zechariah and the account with Mary are virtually mirror images of each other, identical in almost every way, except for a few items. So look at it. Earlier, you can see it. He comes to Zechariah. An angel appears. If you're again, your kids are in kids choir. You remember the song? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. All right, thank you. Um, Think about it. Angel appears to Zechariah. The text tells us, verse 12, Zechariah was troubled. When the angel appears to Mary, Mary was troubled. angel says to Zechariah, hey, do not be afraid. The angel says to Mary later, do not be afraid. The angel promises Zechariah a miraculous birth. His wife and he were old, and yet he says, hey, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. The angel says to Mary, there's going to be a miraculous birth, different from Elizabeth. And yet still a miraculous birth, Mary as a virgin. Zechariah's son will be great. He'll be John the Baptist. Mary's son will be great, the promised Messiah. Zechariah responds with a question. How will this be since my wife and I are old? Mary responds with a question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now what happens to Zechariah, you remember? Zechariah gets struck silent. And left mute by the angel for his unbelief. He asked the question, how is this going to be? And the angel zaps him and leaves him mute. And he can't talk until the birth of his son. True story. It's there. You Read it. So we wonder, well, what's going to happen to Mary? Because so far it's been exactly the same. And she asked the question just like he did. What's going to happen to Mary? Verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? So Zechariah gets zapped, mute, for unbelief. Mary asks basically the same question and gets simply an explanation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Gentle language here about the virgin birth, this profound mystery. No hint here of sexual relations or anything like that. Just a simple power of the Spirit coming upon her. And she's later praised for her faith. Now, the text tells us in verse 20 that Zechariah did not believe. But verse 45, a little bit later, it'll tell us that Mary did believe. And so they both ask a question that sounds very similar. But there's some nuance to their response. His question is coming from a heart of skepticism, where he does not believe, the text tells us. Whereas her question... Is coming from a heart of belief and in good faith, seeking to understand. And so the scriptures show us that you can ask questions, desire to know more, in good faith, wanting to understand, asking about things that don't add up. Or you can ask questions simply as an excuse, as a reason maybe to keep God at arm's length. And those both might look the same on the surface. But they're motivated by something totally different going on in the heart. Now, her ultimate response, you see it in verse 38 I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, we have to stop here and just say, What an amazing response! I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Essentially, she's saying, I'm in. Sign me up. God wants to use me in this way. Here we go. Let's do it. You might think that's an expected response. Like, I mean, how could she not respond that way, right? An angel shows up you know, in her living room and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. This message from God Almighty. Here we go. How could she not respond? And yet, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where people hear the voice of the Lord and do the exact opposite of what he tells them to, right? Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, God miraculously shows up and speaks to Moses, hey, I've got a job for you, Moses, I want to send you back to Egypt, Moses, I want you to go confront Pharaoh and lead my people out of slavery. And Moses is like, you know, I'm not really good at this whole speaking thing, you could probably find someone more qualified, I don't really want to go, you know, you should just, just send somebody else. And he reluctantly goes. But it's not a guarantee at first. Or think about Jonah. God comes to him and says what? I want you to go to Nineveh. I have a job for you to do in Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? Goes and gets on a boat in the opposite direction, going as far away from Nineveh as he can. And so obedience and a proper response to God's call is not a guarantee. And yet we see it with Mary. And so we say, well done, Mary. She says, I am the Lord's servant. It be. This is no small response, right? Think of the consequences in the first century. An unmarried teenager in Nazareth, now pregnant. A scandal of pregnancy with nothing but a fanciful story about a visit from an angel telling her the Holy Spirit was going to somehow make this happen. This would not be an easy path. And yet she believes this was from God and says, okay. Now, what what I love about <laughs> chapter 1 here, this is so good, and this parallel between Zechariah and Mary, As you see in verse 45, uh, later Mary goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, and visits her. And they're both pregnant at the time, okay? So Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is pregnant uh, with John the Baptist. And Mary, pregnant with Jesus, goes and they have, you know, Mary and Elizabeth, they go and they hang out. And while she's there, right, she arrives, and Elizabeth sees her and says to her, do you see what she says in verse 45? Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, the text doesn't tell us where Zechariah is when Elizabeth says this. But I'd like to picture that maybe Zechariah is in the room, Within earshot, maybe kind of like, remember, he can't talk. He's sulking in the corner, kind of grumpy about his unbelief and kind of what it's, it's caused him. And Elizabeth sees Mary, who did believe. And she says, wow. And she looks probably right at Zechariah when she says this. Blessed is she who believed what the Lord said to her. Unlike my husband The seriously the bible's amazing you guys it's just so it's so good blessed is she who believed and so friends as we begin this advent season i want us to see clearly and celebrate the the example of mary her great faith because we have a tendency don't we to doubt and to be cynical and suspicious of everybody and everything Right, nowadays, everyone's trying to sell us something. Politicians don't keep their word. We got the Girl Scouts chasing us down every year to buy cookies, right? Everybody wants something from us. Girl Scouts, the cookies are fantastic. I'm a fan. Just, you know, we're always wondering, though, like, does someone, can we really trust people? Or do people just want something from me? We're suspicious. And we transfer that skepticism to God, into his word. I don't know. Is God really good? Is God really going to keep his promises to us? Maybe now more than ever, right, this last year or two. There's been so much loss, so much just challenge. Things have felt dark for for a lot of us in a lot of ways. Maybe a lot like the Jews for those 400 years where they're waiting to hear from God. And they're wondering, is God going to keep his word to us? So we can relate maybe with that story. And maybe we would still believe in the power and the sovereignty of God on paper, you know, in theory, but when it comes to our hearts and how we live our lives, we're, we're not so sure. And so this morning is simply an invitation to start this Advent season preparing with, with faith. This Advent season to choose to believe Again, to have our faith restored in the goodness and power of God. And I want to say, too, right off the start, of that that includes lament and uh, acknowledging loss. Right? Christian faith, biblical faith, is not just like, like happy, clappy, and there's no problems we have, and we're just going to breeze past all the hard things and pretend like it didn't happen. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is acknowledging pain, loss, grief, struggle, and choosing to believe and trust, even in the midst of such loss. Even when it feels like all the pieces of the puzzle aren't on the table in front of us, we don't quite see how it adds up. We're going to choose to trust and believe that God is good. And so for you, this could look a number of ways. There's a couple different applications make One, maybe you need to have faith that God can do the impossible. Right, for Mary, the promise of a son while remaining a virgin was miraculous. Right? Humanly speaking, the math doesn't add up there. And so maybe a simple application is, you know, maybe there's somewhere in, in your life it feels impossible. It feels like something's never going to change. The circumstances that you're facing are so discouraging and difficult. It's overwhelming. Life has beat you down to the point where you feel like God will not, cannot intervene. Things will never change. I know for me, I've had seasons like that of discouragement, especially in ministry where it feels like, you know, there's no fruit or I feel like I'm sharing the gospel and I'm not seeing non-Christians come to faith or respond to any invitations. Just feel, you know, I'm a pastor. I went to seminary. I'm a a Christian gone pro here. And it it just doesn't seem like there's fruit. And so I just, sometimes I get discouraged. Like, God, do you want to use me in that way? Am I going to see fruit? And people respond to the gospel and come to faith. And I need to, in those places, remember, God still changes hearts and transforms lives. And even if I'm not seeing the fruit right now for, for whatever reason, God can and will do it. And as I was actually preparing this sermon, thinking about this point, about believing the impossible and that God can uh, intervene in hopeless situations and respond when it feels like uh, nothing's going to change. I remember I actually this week preparing the sermon and uh, I got a text from a friend of mine from college. He's not a Christian and we were recently talking about faith, and he's kind of of the perspective that Christianity has been overwhelmingly like a negative influence in the world and is like an instrument of oppression and hatred and um, exclusion and things like that throughout history. And so I tried to share with him, actually, if you go back and look at the history, look at the scholars who study like the influence of Christianity in the world, it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, let's talk about hospitals and schools and orphanages, and you, you, you name it, right? The Christian influence on the world has been incredible, and start, tried to kind of share some of that with him, but he, you know, some article, he wasn't really interested, He's like, ah, we can disagree to disagree, because um, that, that narrative wasn't something he was willing to entertain, but then, so I was like, okay, closed door, you know, fair enough, uh, but then during this this week, during as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm like, ah, oh, it feels like there's never any food or progress, he texts me, true story, he's like, hey, um, those kind of articles you were talking about that you know shared some of those points you were making, would you be willing to send those to me? I'd, I'd want to look at them. So I was like, "Hey, all right, you know, dude, you know, this dude's not a Christian yet, but it's it's something, right? It's a step. There's progress." And so that was like really encouraging because it feels like sometimes those conversations go nowhere, but here at least was, "All right, Lord, you're doing something." So maybe for you, again, there's just a, a simple step of I'm gonna believe again that God can do something here in, in my family, in my community. Maybe it's just in my life. I'm going to believe, again, that God is good and his word is true, even when it doesn't all seem to fit together. And that's the essence of faith, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is confidence, what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. So necessary to faith, it seems, is not seeing. Right? We have to trust. So I don't know what that looks like for you, what situation comes to mind as we're talking through this, but I want to invite you to believe again this season and maybe then take a step of faith in light of that. Again, maybe it's a phone call you need to make. Maybe it's a, a risk you need to take. Maybe it's, a, a, commitment maybe it's a, a commitment you need to make. Maybe it's seeking someone's forgiveness. Maybe it's... Um, Ending a relationship, maybe it's uh, giving more generously. Maybe it's just some something where you're like, I can't see exactly where this is leading, but I feel like God is moving me to take a step and believe that He's in this. Next, maybe you need to have faith that God can use you. It's one of the uh, just most fun parts about this story in Luke chapter one. Is think about Mary. It stands out so clearly. Her credentials are wildly lacking, right? She's, this, she's young, she's barely 14 years old, probably. She's a woman, which in the ancient world would leave her virtually no status, no power. Likely she couldn't read, she's probably poor. And so, so the only uh, knowledge of the scriptures she has would come from maybe what her family says out loud at home or what she hears read aloud in the synagogue. She couldn't sit down and like read a Bible like we can today. And so humanly speaking, she's from Nazareth, Nowheresville. So humanly speaking, there's nothing about her that would make us think she's the one God's going to powerfully use. She has all the credentials. And yet, she's the one God uses in this miraculous way, which is so opposite of Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah, right? Think about Zechariah. He's a man. He is a priest. He's serving in the temple. He's educated. He's a religious professional, basically and yet he gets zapped for unbelief and she gets praised for her faith it just the text is just highlighting this for us that Mary has really the only thing you need to be used by God which is faith and a willing heart and we see this over and over again in scripture as it's so, it's so encouraging to see how God loves to turn things upside down using a bunch of like you and me. It's what God loves to do. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is what God loves to do. That chapter talks about just the power of the gospel, how to so many in the world, it looks foolish. It looks weak. It looks like failure, and yet it's what God uses to transform the world. And it shows God's power and glory by using people like us. You so, say, "Well, you feel like you're unqualified? Great. That means you're actually qualified Come and follow me. As I just I think about my own life, about so many times, so many foolish things I've done. If I told you all these stories, you you might question coming to church yeah, I don't know. Um, I I asked Zoe this week. I was like, I, you know, I'm talking about how God uses all of us, and you know, a couple stories come to mind for me. But like, asked, I came home and I asked Zoe and Amber, like, hey, what's a story that comes to mind? You know, when you think about me doing foolish things. And Zoe, like, right away, raises her hand, like, ooh, I got one, I got one. I was like, Zoe, a little too eager there. Thank you. But what came to mind for me is Zoe didn't know the story. But back in college, I remember, uh. Amber came over. We were dating at the time, freshman year in college. Uh, we, you know, we in different buildings in the dorms there. She comes over, and I, when she comes over, I'm in um, my dorm cleaning my toilet, right? And uh, the way I'm cleaning it, though, is with like a beach towel down in the bowl, you know, getting all the nitty-gritty. And she comes in, and with horror, with horror, Looks at me and says, "What are you doing? Am I'm I like, I'm cleaning the toilet? Aren't you impressed?" And she was not impressed at all. She was like, "You know, so they, if you've ever cleaned a toilet with a beach towel, solidarity. I am with you. You are not alone." But it turns out there are like tools and things they make specifically for cleaning a toilet. You can go to the store, you buy it, bleach a little wand. You know, it just keeps. You know, it's all contained. But to me, I was like, this is a great idea. This makes perfect sense. And she's like, this is not a great idea. And so it's just amazing that I'm alive. And it's a testament to the grace of God in my life that I'm still here today. But friends, it's, it's a true story, but it's, it's silly, right? But in reality, right, and even more profoundly, we can all look at things from our lives, our failures, how God has been so incredibly patient with us, so incredibly Merciful with us. This is how God loves to work, to take the weak and the overlooked and the foolish things to bring about life and transformation and power through the gospel. And so I share that to hopefully encourage you that God's not, you know, up there wringing his hands worried about the future of his church. Where Are his plans going to come to pass or like No one seems to be listening to me, and so I need to go and recruit like the really flashy, popular, smart, strong people. Like if we could get some pro athletes and maybe some like musicians to start caring about Jesus, then the world will really take notice. And so that's what the church needs, and God's really like stressed. Are they going to care and pay attention? God's not worried. And in fact, the power of the gospel and the glory of God is shown as he takes ordinary folks like you and me, and uses us to see lives change, to see the gospel go forth, to see the power of God on display. So this Advent season, maybe you need to have faith that God can do the impossible. Maybe you need to have faith that God can use you. Maybe we could start again, one step even simpler, just faith that God can save you. Maybe the hardest thing for you to believe is the simple gospel message that though you are a sinner, Christ died for you. And God sent his son, Jesus, to be born that first Christmas and ultimately die on a cross for you so that you might be forgiven of your sins. See, we, we see Mary's example, and it's it's incredible. It's noteworthy. We celebrate her faith. But I also want you to see how it points us forward not just to Mary, but to Jesus. Think about the connection. Mary had this scary mission placed in front of her. Great challenges ahead. All kinds of loss, social implications, right? Pregnancy, unmarried, first century world, right? Even still, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be fulfilled. Years later, though, Her son, Jesus, as he's grown, stands before the cross in the garden, facing death, facing unimaginable loss, the weight of the world's sin placed on him. And he says, what? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross. See, this morning, the story, it's about Mary, but it's really not about me. It's really about Jesus and him going to the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, dying in our place, so that whoever believes in him would be saved, forgiven, reconciled to the God who loves us. So, friends, that's the message of the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We're not reconciled to God through our own righteousness through the righteousness of Christ. And so friends, this morning, I don't want to leave you ultimately with look to Mary, although we, we should be grateful for her example. Ultimately, I want you to point you to Jesus and say, look to Jesus and what he's done for you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we... We celebrate you this morning as our Savior and King. You are the promised one, the King who would come and rule on the throne of David and reign forever. We worship you. We long to be simply uh, part of your kingdom, seated at your table, part of your family. We thank you, Jesus, that you have offered this to us, not through our own obedience or righteousness, not through the law, but through your perfect obedience, your life, death, and resurrection, that whoever would believe, whoever trusts in you, could receive this gift. So Lord, for those here this morning that are already following you, I pray that you would encourage us where we've started to doubt, where we've lacked faith, would you resurrect our faith this season? And I pray, Lord, for for those here this morning who uh, wouldn't consider themselves your follower, who have not uh, put their faith in you, that, that this would be the day where they say yes to you, Jesus. Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me. I put my trust in you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.